0: Welcome to the 23rd episode of the 39A podcast. This is Neetika Vishwanath from Project 39A, a criminal justice initiative based out of the National Law University, Delhi. Singapore has recently been in the news for carrying out executions at an alarming pace. At the end of August 2022, 10 people were executed. In light of these recent events, today, I am in conversation with Ms. Kirsten Hahn. Ms. Hahn is a journalist and has been an anti-death penalty activist in Singapore since 2010. She co-founded the Transformative Justice Collective, which is a collective founded on the principles of transformative justice and committed to seeking the reform of Singapore's criminal punishment system, starting with the abolition of the death penalty. Ms. Hahn also runs... We the citizens: a newsletter that covers Singapore from rights-based perspective. There are few people who are as well placed to give us a comprehensive sense of the administration of death penalty in Singapore. Hi Kirsten, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and welcome to the 39a podcast. Thank
1: you for inviting me.
0: The death penalty is on the books as a punishment for a multitude of offences in Singapore. But it's generally used for three main ones. In this order, drug trafficking, murder and firearm offences. However, vast majority of death row cases in Singapore have to do with drug offences. Kirsten, could you please tell us why most people on death row in Singapore are persons convicted for drug offences?
1: So there are relatively few murder and firearms cases in Singapore. You know, we're a very small country and it's largely a safe country. So we, and we have very harsh um, gun laws as it is, very strict gun laws. So firearms offenses are very, very few. Um, Intentional murder cases are also quite few, but we do have an extremely punitive and harsh war on drugs. So under the law, it actually doesn't take that much to get sentenced to death for a drug offense so for instance if you have 15 grams of heroin or 500 grams of cannabis then that's actually enough to to attract a capital charge and you might actually get the mandatory death penalty for drug trafficking so the vast majority of people on death row in Singapore were convicted of drug offenses
0: right right And in 2012, the Misuse of Drugs Act was amended. And that's when there was some discretion accorded to court to not impose death sentence in certain circumstances. And I'll just give our listeners a sense of what the amendment was before I get to my question. So the amendment added Section 33B. Uh, Section 33B modified the legal framework governing the sentencing of persons convicted of drug trafficking in two ways. First, it made it mandatory for the courts to sentence an offender to life imprisonment instead of the death penalty if the offender was merely a courier under Section 33B3A and the offender was also suffering from an abnormality of mind under Section 33B3B. Second, it conferred on the courts the discretion to sentence an offender to life imprisonment instead of the death penalty if the offender was merely a courier under Section 33B2A and the public prosecutor had issued a certificate of substantive assistance under Section 33B2B. Question, before I get to the questions about the amendment and its implementation, could you please give us a sense of the events in the lead-up to the amendment? What may have been the possible reason to move away from strictly mandatory death penalty in law by incorporating this element of judicial discretion through the
1: 2012 amendment? Yes, so the government um, has not you know, acknowledged this as the reason. Uh, and, and you know they were just saying that, oh, we were reviewing the law but what was what's worth noting is that what was happening in the run up to this review and uh, an amendment was that there was a high profile campaign for a young man by the name of Yong Vi Kong who was on death row in Singapore and he was from Sabah from a very poor family uh had left home very very young uh fallen in with a gang because he didn't really have anyone else looking out for him and he started delivering drugs for this gang. And at the time of his arrest, he was only about 19 or 20 years old, was essentially illiterate at the time. And while in prison, taught himself to read, became a very devout Buddhist. And so, you know, had this very sympathetic redemption story that led to people saying, you know, why why should a young man like that not be given a second chance? So there was a lot of campaigning in Singapore and in Malaysia for him. That he had a pro bono lawyer who was filing uh, challenges challenging the constitutionality of the mandatory death penalty, which you know got him a stay of execution, but also bought time for campaigners in Malaysia and Singapore to act. So there was a lot of attention on his case and that pressure was also building. So I think it's also worth noting that, you know, once the amendments came in, he did get a certificate and he did get re-sentenced to life imprisonment, and he's still in prison uh, in Singapore today, but, you know, he was not executed. And and so I think, you know, the, the attention that, Kong's story drew to the mandatory death penalty for drugs and how it doesn't allow for mitigation, how it doesn't allow for second chances, also kind of put a lot of pressure.
0: Right, right. That's very interesting. Thanks, Kirsten. I want to now move on to your assessment of the amendments, both the formal law and its implementation in the one decade of its existence. And the first thing that I wanted to ask you about was the first change in the framework, which is requiring both the fact that the offender is a courier and also that they're suffering from an abnormality of mind. If you could tell us a little more about it and about the possibility of someone who's not seen as a courier, but still has... Uh, still suffers from abnormality of mind and can be executed. And this reminds me of a recent case uh, from April 2022 uh, where Nagendran Dharmalingam was executed and he was someone with intellectual disability.
1: Yeah, so it's, the clause itself shows that it's not enough to be found to have abnormality of mind. You must have abnormality of mind that impairs your mental responsibility for the act in question, which, you know, in this case would be the act of drug trafficking. And so that's actually a very high bar. Out of the 22 people who, who were curious uh, since the introduction of this clause, I think only about eight of them, were sentenced or re-sentenced under this abnormality of mind exception. Um, so it's it's not easy to qualify. And so we see with Nagin's case that even though his IQ score was you know, 69, even though he had ADHD and other cognitive impairment, it was not considered enough to pass the test because they found that it did not substantially impair his mental responsibility that he knew right from wrong and and therefore he doesn't fulfill this exemption and that's why he got sentenced to death so it's it's really hard to kind of reach that and we've seen with you know UN experts advising that we should move away from this very medicalized model that it's fixed on formal diagnosis right there's a lot more attention now being paid to psychosocial disabilities and focusing on the sort of barriers that individuals encounter when they you know, interact with society and interact with the legal process. Um, whereas how this clause works is that it's still very grounded and, you know, getting a medical diagnosis, um, you know, trying to figure out, trying to get doctors to figure out, you know, whether, oh, it, whether it impairs someone's mental responsibility, which is really difficult and really subjective to say, like how, how do you decide how much mental responsibility someone had at any given point? Right? So, so it's quite a difficult um, exemption to, for people to actually satisfy.
0: Right, right. And, and the next thing that I want to talk about is the second sort of modification in the law, which is this certificate of substantive assistance. And if you could tell us a little more about what this is and how easy or difficult is it to get this certificate, especially because it's the public prosecutor's office that is issuing it. And they are generally uh, the office that wants to see this person convicted and punished.
1: Yeah, so the certificate of substantive assistance is, you know, a very problematic system. It's sold to the public as, oh well, you know, then this will help us disrupt drug trafficking activities. This will help the police do their jobs to keep you safe. But you know, it, it's such a troubling system that essentially reduces people's lives to how useful they are. To the state and to law enforcement and the way that it works like it's it's very opaque as a system you know we don't really have that much insight into how the public prosecution along with the central narcotics bureau makes its decisions about who gets or doesn't get a certificate uh it's not easy to challenge their decision in court and And also it's very troubling from a sort of due process and fair trial uh, angle because we also have to keep in mind that in Singapore, when you get arrested and you're interrogated by the police, you do not have legal counsel with you. So we are talking about guys who are in in the interrogation room with the police. They do not have a lawyer. They are probably really scared, really stressed out might not be thinking straight and and in this situation they have to make this decision of do they cooperate in the hopes of maybe getting this certificate but while they are cooperating they're probably also incriminating themselves in all sorts of ways which would then undermine whatever defense they might want to put forth at trial or do they keep quiet uh in the hopes of, you know, preserving things for their defense. But if you lose, you are not getting the certificate, then you're definitely getting the death penalty. So it's, it's such a high stakes decision for people to be making in that situation where they have no access to legal advice. And, and, you know, really that this certificate works as a sort of inducement for people to talk to the police without legal advice.
0: Right. And it's so interesting and unfortunate that you're forced between two choices of possibly self-incriminating yourself in the hope that you may not get the mandatory death sentence. But there is a recent case of Paneer Selvam where he did assist uh, the prosecution, but the attorney general chambers did not give him the certificate. And uh, the logic was that They already had the information that he told them, which is why he was not eligible for a certificate. So even the, I mean, this kind of logic to reject uh, the certificate also comes into play. Could Could you tell us a little more about this case and what your own experience was of seeing this case and how this issue of certificate of substantive assistance played out here?
1: Yes. So before Pania's case it was not very clear to us how they decided whether you got a certificate or not and what their definition of substantively assisted was. So Pania's case highlights this very troubling thing right that they see it as oh um it's something that we must use it it must be useful to us. So so it it's quite clear from that judgment that the way this certificate process works it's not to you know give people a chance if they cooperate it's it's really to just meet the goals of the law enforcement and the government so what they said was basically oh he gave us information we accept that he gave us information we accept that he cooperated and he was truthful but we already knew it so we didn't use it and therefore you know he's going to remain on death row and Of course, for Panir, it's very distressing because, you know, it's completely out of his control whether they use it or not. He can only control whether he gives them information, which he did. And then it's completely out of of his control that they said that they already knew it and they said that they didn't use his information. And there's also no independent means for us to to actually check that this is true, that they really didn't use his information, that they really knew it already. and that what he told them was not useful in any shape or form. So so it gives the police and the public prosecutor a lot of discretion to say whether they used it, they used something or not. And there's no real independent mechanism to to verify what they say. But, you know, in, in Pania's case, his life depends on it, right? So it's incredibly high stakes and it's very stressful For the families as well, because, you know, it's for the families, it's so hard to accept how this process works. And we do see cases, for instance, where they are co-accused and one person gets a certificate and the other doesn't. And it's so difficult for families to accept, right, that their loved one's co-accused has a certificate and is able to live, but, you know, not their brother or not their son.
0: Right. Could you also tell us about cases where, uh, people have actually been able to use this amendment to their benefit and have had their uh, sentences converted to life imprisonment? I, I understand that there have been concerns of co-accused getting that benefit and the other accused not getting the benefit, and it, it seeming and it is very arbitrary and 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 like you said that there's lack of any transparency on how these decisions are made and there is no way to challenge these decisions but it would be interesting to also hear of cases where this amendment has actually helped in commutation of death sentences
1: yes so for the case of Yong Kong, so the one I was talking about before with the with the campaigning he did get a certificate uh, after the law was amended and he did get re-sentenced so he's now serving a jail term uh, another young Malaysian Chong Chun Ing also had the same so Chun actually at first the Attorney General's chambers said that they were not giving him a certificate and then I, I think there was a change in the Attorney General and then they changed their position and said they were giving him a certificate after all so he he also got resentenced. So we have cases like these where people are given certificates and therefore the court is allowed to choose an alternative punishment. So if you get a certificate, so if your exemption from the death penalty is via the certificate process rather than the, rather than the abnormality of mind process, you will get life imprisonment plus caning so we we have seen guys get uh get this alternative sentence
0: and is do you i mean as someone who's been doing this for more than a decade do you have a sense of the kind of cases where people are actually able to use this law is or is it extremely random and there's no way to gauge oh, when it will work and when it will not work
1: yeah so it's not very clear because we don't entirely understand um how they decide because there's no way for us to know uh until the police and the public prosecution say themselves whether a piece of information was used or not and therefore whether a certificate will be given or not so there's there's no real way of knowing until that point
0: and besides this amendment, another issue of serious concern has been the discriminatory use of the death penalty in Singapore on persons from ethnic minorities. And uh, in Syed Suhail bin Syed Zin and others versus Attorney General, this was a case from 2021 where 11 plaintiffs, which included 10 persons of Malay ethnicity and one Malaysian national, they sought a declaration against the Attorney General's office that it acted arbitrarily against the plaintiffs as persons of Malay ethnicity when prosecuting them for captive drug offences, and the court dismissed the case. Can you tell us a little more about this and the disparate use of death penalty on persons from ethnic minorities?
1: Yeah, so what we see is that there is really a disproportionate overrepresentation of ethnic minorities on death row in Singapore. So be the um, people of Malay ethnicity or Indian South Asian uh, ethnicity. Um, so particularly the number of Malays on death row in Singapore is really disproportionate to, to the demographics of the country. So this case that was brought was pointing to these um, statistics saying like, look at these numbers it's really out of whack compared to the population breakdown and so there must be something here that needs to be examined like is there direct or indirect bias in how the law is being applied or in, or in how you know the cases are being handled and this was dismissed because the the judge did not feel like that was sufficient evidence to show that there was discrimination or bias and the government also came down quite hard on, on this. They well comments like they At one point they suggested that this was, um, you know, partly involving foreigners, like foreign lawyers who were also trying to stir up racial sentiments in Singapore and, you know, race and religion is treated as extremely sensitive issues in Singapore. And so they, And the law minister basically just kind of dismissed it as mudslinging. But actually, anybody who looks at the makeup of death row can see that it is so disproportionately ethnic minorities. And, you know, so as as an activist, regardless of, you know, the legal arguments, just looking at it from a social point of view, there is something there that we need to talk about. Why are there so many minorities on death row? So everybody who was executed this year, and then there was, there's was there been 10 of them so far this year, all of them are minorities, uh, Malay or Indian. Thanks
0: for that, Kirsten. And another, I was reading this case, the decision, and what I also saw was that the court noted at the end of, of the proceedings, and I quote, that the proceedings were an abuse of the process of the court. And I also read about a recent case filed by 24 death row prisoners who claimed that their access to justice is obstructed in Singapore since the courts are imposing hefty fines on lawyers who are indulging in, I quote, in courts frivolous cases and using delay tactics according to the court. And as a result, lawyers are not willing to take up cases of death row prisoners. Could you tell us a little more about this and about the court seeing this as an abuse of the process of court and imposing fines on lawyers who do death penalty cases?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think uh, I can explain a little bit first of how representation kind of works. So in Singapore, if you don't have a lawyer at trial for a capital case, uh, they can appoint a lawyer for you. So Ideally, they would want you. So unless you specifically waive and say you don't want a lawyer want to self-represent, they will find you a lawyer at trial and also at the appeal. But once that appeal is done, uh, a lot of the appointed lawyers, they might work on a clemency petition for you. But after that, it tends to be that the lawyer sees it as, you know, that's about as far as they can go and then they might discharge themselves. Um, Or as far as a court is kind of concerned, that's, that's it, right? Like that's the end of the process and you don't technically need a lawyer anymore because you're just waiting for the sentence of death to be carried out at whatever point. So when prisoners have, cases that they want to bring up then these are post, post-appeal post cases. Um, it's not as easy to ask for an appointed lawyer so it's already quite difficult for them to, to find a lawyer sometimes especially if they can't afford it. Um, then we've seen since I think about 2016 we've seen the court and the Attorney General chambers become more kind of aggressive and assertive in saying that late stage applications, especially if an execution notice has already been issued. um, I've seen multiple cases in which they will say that, oh, this is an abuse of process. You're just filing the case to stall for time so that you can get a stay of execution. Uh, And then when when they say that it's an abuse of process, then it's quite likely that the public prosecutor will ask for costs and the courts might award them. So we've seen lawyers who have been fined, you know, thousands of dollars or like tens of thousands of dollars. And apart from the fines, there's also, you know, anxiety over the reputational cost of it because Singapore is very small. The legal fraternity is very small. Uh, and so it, it is quite difficult. It's actually very difficult now for death row prisoners to find lawyers, particularly if they need them pro bono as well, to do a late-stage case because the lawyers are really worried about the repercussions. Right. So,
0: I mean, Custom, based on our discussion so far, there are some serious concerns with the way the death penalty is administered in Singapore. And I know that there have been multiple challenges to the mandatory nature of the death penalty. And the latest one was in 2010. But I just wanted to sort of uh, have you talk to us about what your assessment is of these constitutional challenges that have been made, the kind of issues that they've covered and the kind of issues that they've missed out on. And how, how would you assess the way the courts have responded to these challenges?
1: Yeah, so there there are different issues that have been brought up, you know, from rights to, like like the case that you just mentioned, they talked about their constitutional right to access justice and equal protection before the law. Uh, there's been, you know, right to life arguments, because our constitution does have right to life. And, it's quite difficult it's really difficult because it's hard to, to get this sort of argument through because the courts in Singapore will tend to say these are political questions and should be decided by parliament. And so if you are upset about it, then the right way is to lobby parliament to abolish the death penalty or whatever it is that you want, but not come to us to as a way to like go around parliament and, and achieve this goal. So we see that not just in like death penalty cases, but also recently um, in constitutional challenges against Section 377A of our penal code, which criminalizes sex between men. We see that the court says something very similar also, right? Like, you know, to get rid of it, you should go to parliament and not to court. So it's quite difficult to kind of get these arguments through. And in the recent one with the access to justice that, you know, the 24 prisoners were arguing, the court basically just said that, you know, they didn't feel that the prisoners had that right legal basis to proceed. And they basically said that, oh, you know, if lawyers are deterred from taking on cases, then it's actually coming from a misunderstanding of how the system works because we wouldn't, Impose fines on them for no reason, right? They said like basically, oh, we only impose fines if the case is unmeritorious, not if say the case is weak on its merits. But I think from a from lawyers who are you know already quite worried about what risk they might be taking on, that's not a very clear line. Like when is something weak on its merits and when is something unmeritorious as a case? That's I'm not sure that that is a risk that you know, lawyers might want to take when they're taking on these um, late-stage death row cases.
0: Right, right. And could you perhaps, because, I mean, we're getting this rare opportunity to not read about this but talk to you, if you could tell us, like, what have been some of the concerns that the lawyers may have, you know, spoken about something that you have heard directly or indirectly uh, and how practice of imposing fines has actually deterred lawyers from taking up these cases. Like, what is the conversation that is happening on the ground level in Singapore on this?
1: So I guess the cost is one thing because you know that's still a lot of money, and and they they demand the cost to be paid by the lawyer, not by the client. Um, so you know, they will be personally on the hook if they get these course orders. And I've seen how, how it works. The attorney general's chambers sends a letter saying when they expect the money and then they give you their bank account details and you're supposed to like pay them. And then I suppose there's also some anxiety over reputation, you know, to, if you end up with this reputation, because, you know, if the newspaper is constantly reporting that the courts are saying you abuse process, that also affects your reputation as a lawyer. Um, Singapore is very small, right? So the judges that they meet, the public prosecutors that they deal with, the Attorney General's Chambers, it's all the, you know, it's, it's a very small circle. So there, there are also kind of professional reputational concerns. I understand from when I hear you know, lawyers talking about their concerns. So these are all things that kind of factor into it. Uh, Generally, you know, it's just very intimidating as well to feel like it's a hostile environment in which to do this work, that uh, anti-death penalty work is not welcome and, and you don't want to, you know, attract undue attention to yourself and your practice Uh, in what is essentially an authoritarian state. Kirsten,
0: next thing that I want to move on to is how the state has, the stance that the state has taken on the death penalty. And I was looking up recent news reports and on 2nd September, the Home Affairs and Law Minister, K. Shanmugam, He had a dialogue session with students from the Nanyang Technological University said, and I quote, If I remove the death penalty, the flow of drugs into Singapore will be much higher. Your lives, your siblings' lives, many of other lives would be at risk. More people will die in Singapore if we remove the death penalty. And another reason that has been uh, given recently to maintain death penalty on the statute books for drug offenses is the fact that you know Thailand has legalized cannabis Malaysia is doing away with the death penalty so the death penalty is needed more than ever in Singapore how would you respond to these statements and claims of deterrence
1: so that's the standard claim that the government puts forward that's their narrative they've even described their drug policy and the death penalty as harm prevention in the context of drugs but you know what's really important and and doesn't actually get that much airtime in Singapore is that there is no proof that the death penalty is effective in deterring drug use or the drug trade so this is something that's like extraordinarily difficult to study right because what metrics do you use to calculate effectiveness but there's no actual proof. The onus should be on people who want to execute people to prove that it's effective and it's working as they say it is, but we don't actually really have proof. When the government talks about their proof, they, they've they been trotting out surveys that basically say, oh, people believe that it is a deterrence or that okay, you know sometimes when they interview suspects or accused persons, accused person says, Oh, because I know the law, then I, I brought less drugs. So, so there are these sorts of bits and pieces of information, but that doesn't actually add up to evidence that it works. And and so we're really basing this policy on assumptions that are not proven, and we've been having this death penalty for drugs policy for for years now. You know since. We brought it in in I think nineteen seventy five, so it's really been years and years. It's been hundreds of lives, you know, people executed, hanged, uh, on something that we just stubbornly believe, but we do not have evidence for.
0: Right, a uh, person given that there is no evidence that uh, death penalty deters drug use. And um, the state seems to be sort of relying on the fact, just assuming that it deters and also the fact that people believe that it deters, even if there is no evidence. If I were to ask you that, you know, if the state were truly committed to addressing the problem of drug use in Singapore, uh, how should they respond instead? And, and also I see a sort of a conflation of the categories of victims, kingpins someone who's a carrier and i know that the 2012 amendment in some ways tried to make that distinction but uh whatever i've understood so far from reading about the death penalty in singapore is that a lot of people who've been executed were either people who were addicts themselves or people who were carriers uh who are carrying small amounts of drugs and obviously the threshold in the law is uh, very low and which is why they get convicted and end up with a death sentence. But how, you know, if the state was truly interested in sort of addressing the problem, how do you think they should have actually responded to this problem rather than responding with punitive action?
1: So we've seen, you know, growing amount of research indicating that harm reduction approaches and voluntary evidence-based treatment is more effective than punitive ones and so you know treating drug use as a health issue rather than as a criminal issue has been shown to be more effective you know there was a study that was done in Malaysia that showed that People who get to attend voluntary treatment centers, where they are given, you know, where experts and medical practitioners give them substitute um, drugs, uh, to to kind of wean them off heroin and things like that, they are able to to stick with the treatment and everything for longer before they relapse. Whereas those who go to the compulsory drug detention centers that the Malaysian states run uh, relapse much faster. So there's all this, there are all these best practices and research and advice from people who actually have experience working with people with drug dependence or people who have themselves gone through the experience of having drug dependence and making recovery and going through that whole process, showing that, you know, support structures that allow people to seek voluntary treatment and things like that work better. And we can see also from Singapore's drug policy, the, the way that it's so harsh, that it could actually have this counterproductive effect of of causing more harm and dissuading people from seeking help. So for example, so beyond the death penalty, which is just the extreme end, um, We also have things like uh, legal requirements so if you go and see a doctor and the doctor suspects that you're using drugs they are legally obliged to report you and so that actually ends up deterring people from seeking medical treatment if they have drug dependence and they want help to to recover right so but they don't dare to go to the doctor because they're afraid that the doctor will report them to the police So how does that actually help people, and how does that, you know, protect people from say overdosing, um, and getting the treatment that they want? Right. So I think there's so much more that we can do, and it's not like there's no information out there. There's so much policy research and recommendations out there that we could be looking at.
0: Right. So rather than there being any evidence of deterring drug use, what definitely seems to be deterred by harsh punitive measures is people's ability to seek help because of this legal obligation of medical practitioners that you speak about. The last thing that I want to talk about, Kirsten, is something that you mentioned, uh, which is the the state sort of relying on the survey, the public opinion survey, and uh, the session that I was earlier mentioning uh, at the university by the law minister. He also referred to the survey and he said that nearly 87% of Singaporeans support the death penalty. But I do know that there was another public opinion survey done done by three Singaporean academics who relied on this questionnaire uh, prepared by Professor Roger Hood. And that sort of showed how the support for death penalty shifted when people knew a little more about the realities of the death penalty and how it's administered. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about it, that even this, what what is assumed to be this homogeneous, strong public opinion in favor of the death penalty, even that is fractured when you look closely.
1: Yes, so Singaporeans in general, on a theoretical level, support the death penalty. The majority of them do. But then a lot of them will admit if you really kind of probe and and ask. They will either admit or you will find out that actually they don't really know much about how it's implemented, what the law says, how it works, and who gets sentenced to death. And so it's actually not surprising to me when the government gets all these surveys that say, you know, Singaporeans believe that it's a deterrent. Singaporeans support it, they believe it works. Because, you know, if that's the only narrative that people get to see in the mainstream media, then it's entirely circular. You you tell them that it works and then you survey them and ask them if it works. Of course they will say that it works if that's all they've seen in the media. So it doesn't it's not actually helpful. So what we see from the survey that was done by the academics is that The more detail people have, the more they know how it works, Uh, the support for the death penalty actually starts to kind of waver a bit. And we have seen this year also with more attention paid to the death penalty with high profile cases like Nargindran's that there are more Singaporeans now questioning and And saying that, you know, it doesn't make sense that someone like Nagin could have been hanged. Uh, There are more young Singaporeans who are speaking out against the death penalty. So the support in Singapore is not as clear cut as the government would claim that it is. I think, you know, it's it's something that we don't have so much space to talk about, uh, especially in mainstream platforms. But there has been a growing amount of criticism and questions about the death penalty.
0: Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was extremely insightful and thank you so much for
1: your work. Thank you for inviting me.